This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. What if government provided a basic income to all residents, something like $1,000 a month? How much could that change inequality and poverty? Los Angeles is experimenting with that idea, starting with 3,000 people. Sasha Abramsky followed four of the families in that program for a year. His report is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Sasha's work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone, as well as The Nation. And he's written many books, including The American Way of Poverty, The House of 20,000 Books, and most recently, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. We reached him today at home in Sacramento. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. John, so good to talk to you again. First, let's start with the idea of universal basic income, UBI. Where does this come from? Is this Karl Marx? So if you go back hundreds of years, there are certainly a radical rabble-rousers like Thomas Paine who are talking about something like a basic income. But more recently, the idea actually transcends ideology. So in the 1960s, you had Martin Luther King advocating a basic income. But then you also had Milton Friedman advocating a basic income. And Friedman, you know, however you sort of shake him out, Friedman is not a grand progressive. Um, you also had Richard Nixon, who at various times in his career embraced the idea of a basic income. The concept is pretty simple. The concept is basically that a wealthy country has an awful lot of people who either don't have the skills, don't have the training, or don't have the geographic opportunity to find work. And we as a society have the resources to actually provide a degree of comfort and security. So the idea is that if we choose not to do that, that's a political choice. But if we choose to channel money towards certain people, there's tremendous societal benefits. And how is this different from unemployment compensation or food stamps or uh, rent assistance? It's related to it in the sense that society comes up with various ways of ensuring basic economic dignity and security to people on the margins. Where it differs is that it has no strings attached. So food stamps, for example, are a classic case. They're a great part of the social safety net. I'm a huge fan of the existence of food stamps. They make life better for millions of Americans, but they come with strings attached. You can only buy cold foods in supermarkets that you then have to prepare which is all well and good unless you have nowhere to prepare that food. So one of the families that I talked to, Kamiko and Vaughan and their five children, they'd temporarily fallen into homelessness um, during the pandemic. They were living out of a car, basically, and then they were put into a um, motel during the pandemic. Well, that was better than being on the streets, but they didn't have a kitchen. So food stamps for them were fairly limited because what they needed was the ability to get pre-made food, go to a supermarket and buy a roast chicken, for example, which is heated and therefore ready to eat. And they couldn't do it with food stamps. You can do that with basic income. The, The premise of basic income is that if you give people money, by and large, they will know fairly wisely how to spend that money. It doesn't mean everybody's going to make perfect choices, but by and large, people know what they need. They know that they need to get school supplies for their kids. They know they need to get food. If their car breaks down, they know they need to have the ability to repair that car so that if they do get a job, they can drive to work. Just basic, basic things like that, which is the wonder of UBI. And this sort of really conservative narrative is if you give poor people money, they're just going to fritter it away. And it's sort of there's a moral jeopardy argument. Well, in fact, what I found was when I interviewed Kimiko and Fawn, 
They bought food for their kids. So they bought school supplies for the kids. And then they had a little bit left over and they began taking their kids on outings to museums or to the beach or to parks where they had to drive a few miles. And that's, you know, on the one level frivolous. On the other level, it's vital for child's development. So UBI gives people the option for dignity and it gives people the option to really expand the horizons, especially if they're children. I was amazed to learn from your cover story in The Nation that 80 cities are experimenting with UBI right now. It has the wonderful name Big Leap, B-I-G-L-E-A-P, an acronym that stands for what? Well, the big stands for Basic Income Guarantee. The LEAP stands for Los Angeles Economic Assistance Pilot. But the basic premise is that if you give targeted assistance to people in poor neighborhoods, you make it more likely that they're going to get jobs. You make it more likely their kids are going to thrive in schools. You make it more likely that you're going to be able to break things like the um, schools to prison pipeline. All the problems of deeply entrenched poverty, you have a chance of breaking it if you can provide guaranteed income over a prolonged period of time. The real work that you did was not just sort of explaining the logic of this, but exploring in depth the experience of four people over the course of a year, four families, to see how this worked, in what ways didn't it work. The first UBI recipient you write about is a woman named Alicia Moore. She's got five kids. She's had some good working class jobs. Most recently, she was a bus driver for the LA Metropolitan Transit Authority. She had begun having children very young and she had struggled economically for all of her life. She'd come from a deeply impoverished background. Her mother, she told me, had become a crack addict in the 1980s and sort of any stability that she had at that point disappeared. And so this was somebody who from day one had faced obstacles and they weren't just economic obstacles. They were psychological obstacles. She had a lot of damage, a lot of trauma because of the way she'd experienced the world as a young person in particular. She did have employment episodically, but she'd struggled to keep the employment. She'd been injured on the job. Things had happened. She'd lost her employment. She'd lost her income and she'd lost her housing. So she was in a very precarious situation at the start of the pandemic. She and her younger children were living with one of her grown up daughters in her grown up daughter's affordable housing home. But it was very crowded. And she had no long-term stability and she had no sort of sense of where her income would emerge from. And she applied for the basic income. And the, the way it worked is you had to apply, you had to show that you were poor and they had way more applicants than they had spaces. So they, if, if you sort of met the criteria, they put you into a lottery system. And if you were chosen, you were one of the lucky winners and you, you got this money for a year. And, you know, her story was complicated because she had all these grand dreams. She was going to save a lot of money. She was going to put it aside to put together a down payment for a house. And over the year, that didn't work out. She didn't manage to save money. She had lots of emergency things happen. She had um, just basic bills that had to be paid. Things happened that made it very hard for her to save. So she is not somebody you can look at and say, all right, at the back end of this program, her life was fundamentally changed. The trajectory of her life was fundamentally changed. But what it did do was it gave her a year of security. This is somebody who very easily could have ended up on the streets or very easily could have ended up in absolute destitution. And instead, she had that modicum of security. She could pay her bills. She could feed her children. She could take them on outings. Every so often, she could buy them presents, just the things that parents like to do for their children. And so her life had improved 
but her long-term stability probably hadn't. And that's one of the things that the researchers are looking at. You know, does this fundamentally change the trajectory of people's lives in the long run? Or is it something that's likely to eventually become a sort of souped up better version of the welfare system where it serves as a safety net with dignity for people on the margins? And in Alicia Moore's case, it served more, more in the latter kind of way. And you've already mentioned another woman you wrote about, Kameko Charles. This is the family that was living in their car. The husband needed an immigration lawyer, and this was a big problem. I, I spent a lot of time with them. They were very generous to me. They welcomed me into their house. They were living in, um, I think it was public housing at the time. And I spent a lot of time going with them on outings to the beach with their kids and that sort of thing. Vaughan was a, a car mechanic by training. He was a, he was a car mechanic from Belize, I believe. And he needed to get his immigration papers in order. And like so many vulnerable immigrants at the bottom, they'd given quite a bit of money to an immigration lawyer who basically had done nothing and vanished. So now they were starting again. So it wasn't that he was sort of hiding from the system. He was trying to get everything organized. But what it meant was that they had very limited access to resources. Health insurance was a big issue. He didn't have health insurance. He couldn't afford to buy new prescription glasses. So he was using these glasses that just didn't work anymore. So one of the things that the basic income, the pilot program gave them was enough money for basic things like he could buy spectacles, which actually worked for him, which had the right prescription lenses. Now, that's huge because, you know, if you can't see properly, you can't work. The other thing that was fascinating to me was, and this is, you know, what the parents told me was the kids began calming down that there was so much anger and so much rage because they'd lived this sort of utterly circumscribed life for a few years, couldn't afford to go out, could never afford to go even to McDonald's for a meal, couldn't afford to do basic things. And suddenly their parents were able to take them to the pier so they could teach them how to fish, or they were able to take them on beach outings. And they talked about that they didn't quite manage to save enough, but they talked about taking them to Disneyland, which would have been the first big family trip they'd ever done to an amusement park or anything like that. So they started doing things that expanded the kids' horizons. And there was this enthusiasm. It was really infectious. I mean, I, I loved it. I'd go there and I'd talk with them. And there was just this sort of joie de vivre. They were, they were sort of engaged with the world again after years of not being able to afford to engage. And that is exactly what that kind of program is designed to do. It triggers a whole set of sort of psychological changes that shift the way both the adults and the children engage with the world. But even if they didn't have a savings account with money at the back end, their life expectations and their life journey had changed. And it was just fascinating and wonderful to watch. Then you wrote about a woman named Brittany Frost, 35 years old, mother of an eight-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl. She graduated from Cal State Fullerton with degrees in both business management and a minor in public relations, but she had a lot of health problems, which can be extremely debilitating. Brittany Frost was an example of somebody who sort of completely bucked the stereotype. Conservatives love to put out there this idea that sort of there's an undeserving poor, that there are these poor people who just make utterly flawed personal decisions, and, and that's why they're in poverty. And that may be the case with some people. But in Brittany Frost's case, she was playing by the rule book. She had enrolled in CSU Fullerton to study business. She had gotten lots and lots of work. She was doing everything she could to try to save money to keep her kids afloat. And then she was diagnosed with cancer in her 20s. And it threw everything. She didn't have a family that had resources. She was on her own financially. And suddenly she was a young woman trying to raise two kids, trying to go to university with a cancer diagnosis. And 
she spiraled downward economically. So she ended up losing her, her apartment. She ended up having to move in with her grandmother. Things just went terribly wrong economically. And for her, the big leap was an absolute saving grace because it allowed her to get back on her feet. It allowed her to finish her degree. It allowed her to enroll her kids in things like after school football and basketball and gymnastics classes. And suddenly her family was functioning and thriving again. And she managed to get her degree. She has these great plans now to get a master's degree. She's firmly on a trajectory where she's going to end up with employment that's going to provide a decent income. And she'll be able to get a house or an apartment for herself and her kids. None of that would have been possible without the big leap. And I asked her at the end of my year with her, I was like, you know, what do you say to people who said, well, you know, why should we give poor people a thousand dollars? And she looked at me and she said, because we need it. We need some help feeding our children. She says, nobody says, why do we give middle class families thousands of dollars in tax rebates for mortgages, which we do without thinking about it. But that's a huge subsidy to middle class people. Yet somehow when we talk about giving a very little amount of money, a thousand dollars a month is hardly going to make somebody rich. When we talk about giving that little amount of money to poor people, suddenly all this conversation of moral hazard kicks in. And Brittany Frost is a classic example of why that actually makes no sense, because that thousand dollars in the long run, it's not charity. That is a massive return on an investment. You give a small amount of money to Brittany Frost and her family, and you put them on an upward trajectory economically. And she'll be paying taxes. She'll be contributing to society for the rest of her life. Society will gain far more than $12,000 through that intervention. That's the Milton Friedman approach. That's why it's not just sort of people on the left who say this is a good idea. It's why some fairly libertarian conservative economists also love it, because in the end, it does act as a sort of accelerator, helping people back into, well, back up the economic ladder again. And finally, you followed a man you call Julio, 41-year-old from Mexico with a wife and three kids. He had been working for $14 an hour in a textile factory in the LA Garment District, and then the pandemic hit and the factory closed. How did Julio do? Well, you know, he, he, he disappeared in the end. And that happens with some of the participants. At a certain point, he stopped corresponding with the um, city office that was responsible for the program. They couldn't find him. I couldn't locate him. And so he sort of, at a certain point, was no longer part of my story. Again, what was so moving to me when I first met him was he was absolutely on the margins. He had nothing when the pandemic had hit. He didn't qualify for unemployment or anything like that. He ended up selling fruit on the street in downtown L.A., and he would make on a good day 50 or 60 or $70. And he'd work for 12 hours in the largely deserted pandemic era downtown streets. And he said to me, you know, how much stress he was under and how high his blood pressure had gotten and how he couldn't sleep properly. And his wife was in the same situation. And then he said, look, I, I was told to apply for this. I applied for it. And they invited me in. I had an interview and I was chosen. And he said, my life had changed. You know, suddenly I could pay my bills. And he began being able to pay his rent again. He, he began being able to buy clothing for his kids. They'd had to scrap everything, any discretionary spending. When the pandemic hit had gone, cell phones had gone, new clothing had gone, just all the basics were being reined in. And so for him, what the big leap meant was dignity. It, it was a degree of security where the most basic, basic things like paying your rent could be covered for a few months. Now, I don't know the end of his story. Because as I said, he disappeared. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know where he is. So there's a question mark there. But the beginning of his story, I do know, the beginning of his story in The Big Leap was transformational. So in the end, do you conclude that 
$1,000 a month is a pretty good amount. And obviously a year doesn't seem to be enough. Yeah, it's not It's not a living wage. A living wage in California is $20, $30 an hour. The minimum wage in California is $15 an hour. So in no way, shape or form does it substitute for a living wage or a living income. What it does do is it provides a no strings attached baseline. So unlike welfare, which is sort of designed to be exclusionary, designed to be humiliating, designed to find ways to say, well, no, you can't do this if you're on the program. You can't live here. You can't buy this. The whole point of a basic income is it basically assumes that the recipients are responsible moral agents. And on that assumption, it says, go and spend the money in the way you need to spend the money and use it to try to right your economic boat. Now, not everybody's going to be able to do that. You know, in Alicia Moore's case, she ended up at the end of the process as economically marginalized as she was at the beginning of the process. So not everybody's going to be able to do it, but it's a it's a window into a set of possibilities. And so, yeah, I'm a fan of this. I think that the more cities adopt this and, you know, it costs L.A. 30 million dollars. That sounds like a lot of money, but L.A. has got a multi, multi-billion dollar budget. You know, if cities and states start adopting these at first as a sort of pilot program and then eventually as a part of their expanded safety net, I think it could be transformational. Sasha Abramsky, he wrote the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. It's called The Grand Experiment about universal basic income in Los Angeles. It's my favorite article in The Nation for a long time. You can read it at thenation.com. Sasha, thanks for doing this project and thanks for talking with us today. John, it is always a joy talking with you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.